Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merc and fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo Cold-blooded with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking, I'm Ellie Newman This week, I've been thinking about existence, survival, and extinction. I've been thinking about black holes, quarks, and dwarfs. I've been thinking about physics and metaphysics and where the two collide. And I've been thinking about composition, structure, and purpose, photons, and red giants, and whether we, inhabitants of this earth, are infinitesimally small or boundlessly grand. My guest today is Michael Wall, PhD. He's a senior writer at Space.com and the author of A Scientist Guide to Alien Life, Antimatter, and Human Space Travel for the Cosmically Curious. Welcome, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us. Sure, sure. Thank you for yeah for actually having me. I really, yeah, I really appreciate it. So I want to start with a kind of general question. Are you an optimist or a pessimist by nature, do you think? Well, it's very situational. I'm, I'm kind of pessimistic about a lot of things, but I'm pretty optimistic about alien life. I, like I, and we can talk about this in greater detail about why that is. But yeah, I mean, I think there's got to be something else out there. And I think we're probably going to find evidence of it before too, too much longer. And do you feel like your scientific training has made you more optimistic or, or more pessimistic? Kind of how has it played on your, your natural leanings? Um. It's, yeah, well, it's 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 in the nature of science to be skeptical, right? I mean, you you have to kind of go where the evidence is. So that that tends to make you a little more pessimistic or a little more cynical, just like just like by nature, I think, just because you always want to to have the evidence or you want like everything to be kind of rock solid. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe. But there's also a lot of room for creativity in a lot of scientific fields. And if you get too jaded and if you get too kind of locked in to one paradigm or another, then and you can miss a very big picture. And it seems like, I don't know if it's especially in this field, that it's in astronomy and, and um, among physicists, but there seems to be a humor <laughs> that bubbles up. Um, and you can sort of find it just in the naming of things. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, I mean, science people have this, this perspective or this, this assumption that scientists are, are kind of like robots or they're, they're like humorless dorks and stuff like that. I mean, I mean some of them are dorks. All of, I mean, a lot of us are dorks. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, there, there's a lot of humor and a lot of like, like a lot of joking and a lot of, yeah, a lot of silliness in science. I mean, and people name, you know, name new species that, that they discover after, after pop culture references and stuff. I, mean, I remember that was one person, one scientist a few decades ago, I think, discovered like a flea or a, or a new like kind of sucking insect and named it after after Gary Larson, the the cartoonist who did The Far Side. As a sort of homage. Yeah. There, there is a lot of that. There, there is a lot of playfulness in science because scientists are kind of just big kids, like all grown up, who still want to learn how the world works. And that's a very childish kind of approach. It's like, oh, wow, how does that work? I want to take it apart and see. That's, that's very much what yeah, science is. Yeah, that's all totally about. true. And, and thinking about the what ifs and not buying the general construction of how things are, are laid out and assuming that, that was, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to plant some seeds for later on so you can think about it over in the back of your mind while we're talking what your favorite planet is and your favorite interstellar occurrence. But I want to start our conversation with what you ended the book with, and just maybe to give us a little bit of perspective, um, with the possible end and, and the idea of what it means 
and looks like for us to keep going. At one point in the book, you're talking about the future and you say, I know we may have sublimated ourselves to virtual or digital meat sacks by then um, for going our fleshy, hairy selves. And so one possibility that you lay out for our future um, before it completely ends, which it seems like maybe one of the likely hoods of, of our finality of, of the entire universe, um, but that along the way, our sort of physical beings may have to give way for our genetic existence or, or some element of us to keep going. Yeah, and that's, it's, it's a big question is like, what are we turning into? And this, um, this, this goes into like ethics and, I mean, and, and also biology. And I mean, it, it cuts across lots of fields. I mean, we're, we're becoming a little more bionic with every passing day as scientists figure out ways to, to fix some of the things that actually ail us by implanting technology into us. I mean, you're seeing some of those advances. Um, people, people are getting implants in th- that go into their brains, actually, that, that can help them like, actually move paralyzed limbs and stuff like that. So this isn't like, this like cyborg stuff is not totally sci-fi, not totally ridiculous. And if you, like, if you put it out into the future a couple hundred years or a couple thousand years and maybe 10,000 years, it's really hard to imagine what, what kind of advances we're, we're going to be able to come up with in those long time frames. So, I mean, I think it's worth thinking about what we turn into in the far future is going to be, yeah, I mean, like we need to consider a bunch of different possibilities that will bear on what we're able to do and where we're able to go. Because, I mean, if we are able to kind of subsume ourselves in, into machines and can somehow upload our consciousness into like a digital form and we become effectively immortal and all that stuff. That's very sci-fi and, and some people might just scoff at it, might laugh it off. But if you talk about a 10,000 year time frame or a 20,000 year time frame, that's, that's not entirely ridiculous really if you think about this sort of path that we're on. I mean, we only invented like the radio 100 years ago or so and look, look what we're doing with, with computer technology and space travel and all this stuff. I and mean, all of it's happening very fast. And so then that big asks the question, like, what is us, right? As I'm listening to you answer, and as I was reading the book, I was thinking, okay, well, yes, that is a form of existence that can continue to go. And it doesn't seem absurd in any way that that could be where we might end up. But it is in your mind or your feeling, your gut, is that still us? Would that be okay with yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know if it would be okay. I, I would prefer, I mean, it's, it's pretty parochial to kind of prefer the like time that you're born into, I guess, but that's what we all do, right? That's what we're used to. And so we, so we think that this is what we want. This is what it happening should be. I mean, but yeah, I think like we would lose like a lot of kind of beauty and a lot of diversity and a lot of life. If we, if we're all machines, um, that, that would be a loss of, of some regard. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if the benefits would, would outweigh that loss. I mean, there, there are like would be benefits to being effectively immortal, obviously, because like, I mean, if you could be, if, if our species could be in machine form, we could make sure we don't go extinct. We could launch ourselves off of earth. And so even when like earth goes belly up, which we can, can talk about, that's definitely going to happen. Like whether it's sooner or in the far future, that's kind of up to us. But, um, but if, if like we're totally machine form, then we, we could get off of earth and just go into space and, be fine basically forever as long as we've we've got enough energy to repair ourselves. So that that's a positive. Yeah. But then you like think about yeah, there there are a lot of things that we would lose along the way, obviously. Too. Well and it it also asks the question then what's the goal? 
You know, what's the goal of existence, which I thought about throughout the book? Um, you know, what, first of all, who are we and, and what makes us us? But also then what's the goal of existence? Because I'm thinking, no, I wouldn't be able to go swimming. I couldn't eat ice cream. Yeah. Couldn't give my, yeah. my kids a hug. Um, so it starts, to, which I think is fantastic for, for, you know, one to start asking, like, what is the goal? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't have the answer to that question. I don't think anybody really does. But it's important to ask that question so you can live your life like always with that in mind so it can be more purposeful and you don't lose sight of what's important. But yeah, I I don't have the answer to that question. So so maybe we'll get there by the end of the interview. What happened um, with our sun? Let's talk about that, our changing sun, our star, swelling into a red giant and becoming super dense. What does that look like? The projection. Well, we, we are, yeah, our sun is about halfway through. It's, uh, t- yeah, it's 10 billion year lifetime. So in in the, in another four and a half billion years or so, it'll swell up in, into a red giant basically and become, yeah, it'll, it'll engulf most, it'll, it'll probably swell up so much that it'll actually like engulf earth and turn us into a, a cinder. But, and so that's, that's going to be rough obviously, but the bad things are going to happen even before then because like our sun is actually heating up in the now in its middle age that's what stars that are better in the sun's class like do they they get warmer as they go through middle age so that's happening now and most scientists think in about another 800 million years or so it'll be warm enough to have actually boiled off earth's oceans and um send all that water vapor up into the atmosphere and where it's a it's it's a potent heat trapping gas so it'll it'll kick into high gear like a greenhouse effect. I mean, even more of a runaway greenhouse effect than we've got now, something like akin to what happened on Venus. And it'll boil away all of our oceans. It'll, it'll heat us up. And that's, it's going to be hard for, for us to survive that um, in our current forms. And that, that's a long way in the future, obviously. So who, who knows what we're going to look like in almost a billion years' time. But if, if we don't get off of Earth by then, if we haven't done something, then we're, we're probably doomed at, that point but that's that's like a lot of time for us to to start trying to figure out where we want to go and how we want to do it and then it turns super dense i thought that was incredibly interesting the the kind of you said i think if you pick tried to pick up a teaspoon of it at that point it would weigh hundreds of tons oh yeah yeah and that yeah that's before it goes white dwarf stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After it goes through the red giant phase, after it, it swells up and it'll kind of collapse on itself and all that's left is like super dense core. And yeah, that's it's basically packed like the Earth's mass into a tiny little sphere that is incredibly dense. Like, I mean, if you got too close to it, you'd just be flattened out by the gravity. It's just like, it's an incredibly exotic object um, that we, we, we would have a hard time like imagining what it's like. But yeah, that's the ultimate fate of our sun. That's how it's going to to be for kind of billions and billions of years after the red giant phase. So just on a positive note, I want to throw in there, I did read as I was doing some research that actually with uh, stopping using hairspray and some of the other hydrocarbons, our atmosphere actually is healing, that we're making good progress. Yeah, 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 that, like, that is true. The ozone hole, that was such a big problem about 25, 30 years ago. It's not completely solved, but yeah. yeah it's, it, the hole's CFD, getting smaller. Yeah, and that that has made a measurable difference, like a huge difference. Um, so yeah, that just shows that 
we we like can fix some of the the, the kind of screw ups that we make along the yeah. way. Action, reaction. There actually are consequences. We can change our behavior. Yeah, yeah. and it'll have different yeah. results. So good things to to keep in mind. Um, so a yeah. a big part of your book out there is um, focused on the question, are we alone in the universe? And it seems like discoveries, even in the last year, um, just that I've heard here and there while listening to the news, um, in the, the you know tiny amount of percentage of news time they give to it, will say have put this at a near certainty. So maybe we can talk yeah, well, about that a little bit. Yeah, it it seems like from a pure numbers perspective, and I guess this goes back to why I'm an optimist about this stuff. From a pure numbers kind of point of view, it seems like it would just be crazy to think that we're the only thing anywhere, like we're the only life forms anywhere. Just there's about 100 billion stars in the Milky Way, and, and on average, every one of them has like at least one planet, and about a quarter of those stars probably have something that's a, that's a rocky planet kind of that that might be the right temperature to support earth-like life you know i mean liquid water on the surface and stuff like that they, these are these are guesses but they're informed guesses based on observations by a bunch of different telescopes and so we're we have learned and this is all just in the last 10 years or so we, we've learned how common all these like yeah you know these exoplanets are and there are probably a lot of them that could support life and we found a lot of stuff in our own solar system that's pointing in that same kind of direction like we found their moons in the outer solar system that, that are covered with like a, a very cold icy shell, but then, but then underneath that shell, there's like a huge ocean of, of, of like salty liquid water that's buried in its system that could theoretically support life as we know it. So there's just, we're, we are learning that there's so many places where life could be. And then if you combine that with what we know happened on earth, and that is that, I mean, life got started on earth really, really quickly, like about 4 billion years ago, give or take. Um, which is almost as soon as it was possible for it to happen, like after the like Earth had cooled down enough to be able to support Earth-like life, um, that's when it happened. So it seems like it's not that hard for life to get going, at least in in like microbial form. And given how many potential worlds there are out there, it just seems like it would be incredibly unlikely that there's nothing else. There's just it's all it's all dead worlds everywhere that. That, that you look up in the sky. That, that, that just seems very unlikely to me anyway. One of the things that you mentioned um, in the book is McKay had said, if you can get two, you can get a billion. Um, and one thing I thought that just came up again and again with it, there's so many scenarios that one of the challenges is what to look for. And that early on, we had sort of looked for similar life to ours. And in, um, in 1950, uh, you talk about physicist Enrico Fermi's question, where is everybody? Um, and you said that was mm -hmm. a reasonable thing to ask back then. And maybe we can talk about sort of what they were starting to see and look at and maybe a little bit about the habitable zone and what that is. Yeah, it's a reasonable thing to, to ask. Um, just because like, I mean, yeah, like we've been talking, even in the 50s, people people suspected that, that like, we're not the only solar system out there. I mean, exoplanets weren't confirmed until 1992. That's when, the, that's when the first planet around another star was confirmed. But people had suspected that they were probably everywhere because why, why would we think that our sun is the only star with planets? It would just be weird. Um, and so when you, like, when you think about that and you, and you know how many stars there are out there and you start doing some calculations about how how common 
I mean, yeah, these, these sorts of worlds should be that could support life. And then you combine that with, with like how old the actual universe is, which is about 13.8 billion years. That's a lot of time and a lot of opportunity for life to get going and to spread. If, if that has happened, it's weird that we haven't found any signs of it. That's like, that's the essence of what Fermi was talking about and what's become known as, as actually Fermi's paradox. And, um, that's only gotten more mysterious ever since then because he was just talking about like a visitation. Like why haven't we confirmed like a visitation from an alien craft? But, but after, um, but yeah, like about a decade after he asked that question, then we started the study search or, or actually listening for signals from aliens. We, we still haven't found any signals. We still haven't heard anything and we haven't seen any spacecraft and we haven't found any alien microbes. So yeah, it is a mystery and scientists are trying to figure out what it might be what may explain it. There have been hundreds of hypotheses advanced to kind of explain it. And yeah, that's like one of the biggest questions that that's being tackled in, in astronomy and astrobiology now. Yeah, and it seems like if someone was a pessimist, yeah, oh, if it, you know, there's so much likelihood if it was out there, we would have found it. But you explain that, I think, really well, um, even starting with a quote you have with, um, uh, I think she was a, a physicist that said, it's like picking up one glass of water out of the ocean and yeah, doing yeah. research on that and then drawing your conclusions from there. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it, that's, it's true because, I mean, first of all, you start with the size of the universe and how many stars there are. And we have not done a complete survey in, 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 yeah, in like radio signals anywhere close to a complete survey of our own galaxy, let alone the entire universe. And then you have to ask, well, I mean, do we even know what a signal would actually look like? Like we've been, and we've been looking for some kind of radio signal or like a light flash because that's the technology we understand. Like that's, that's what we can do. We can look for that because we can generate those signals ourselves. But if there is another civilization out there that's different than us, maybe far more advanced, maybe they wouldn't even use radio signals. Maybe they wouldn't even use laser flashes. Maybe they would have a totally different communication system or they would use something that we can't even imagine, let alone detect. So that, that whole what are we looking for question is a big part of this. I mean, maybe we're just not looking for the right signals or then you can go a whole other direction. Maybe they're out there, but they don't want to be found or maybe they don't care about us or yeah, there, there are a whole, there are a whole bunch of different explanations, which are not necessarily mutually exclusive. You had said maybe ET sends messages via neutrinos. And so maybe we just tell the, the audience what those are. And, and when you said that, I'm like, oh, yeah, like maybe we're being communicated with all the time. <laughs> we're just not really realizing yeah. where that communication's coming from. Yeah, these are bizarre little particles. I mean, they're called ghost particles because they, they basically go through matter like it's not even there. They, they're, they're streaming through you all the time. I mean, the, the sort of vast majority of them that stream through Earth and stream through our bodies every second are coming from the sun. There's trillions of them every second. But yeah, I mean, it's possible if you're an advanced enough civilization, you could, could harness those things which travel very, very fast and can go through planets. That, that would be pretty handy for communication purposes. I mean, who knows? If, if you're talking about some civilization that, that kind of got its rise 10 million years ago or a billion years ago, I mean, who knows what they're capable of doing if if they've been advancing ever since then. And there's so many questions you bring up about, you know, how we are listening and how we're talking to them. And should we be talking to them? You know, do we want them to know we're here? Um, Hawking 
definitely seems like he did not think that was a good idea. We not, should not be jumping on the top of the hill, waving our hands, saying, hey, hey, over here. No, he was um, not yeah, he smart. Was, he was extremely vocal about that. Yeah, that, that was one of his big things. He, he thought that it could end very badly for us. But he, and he thought, and, and there are a bunch of other people like him who think it's very irresponsible to advertise our presence to creatures if they exist that might be much more advanced than we are and might have like kind of like malign intent. We, we don't know what they would do if they found us and they're much more advanced. Maybe they would conquer us. Maybe they would destroy us. And yeah, it, there's just a lot of unknowns that there, there's a very vocal group of scientists. Probably the most prominent was even Hawking who were saying, well, wait, let's think about this before we do it. And in the last just 75 years, it's incredible to think the expansion that we've made. And I think so much of this we don't hear about. Um, but you were talking about even you mentioned the, the radio channels and, and listening. We went from scanning 100 radio channels to now 100 billion. That's a big leap. Yeah. And that that's part of the good news about how, how the search is accelerating. Because I mean, it's so computer based now. I mean, they like they can analyze the like the signals coming from millions of stars and they can I mean like you need pretty powerful software to crunch all that data and to try to see if there's anything in it and yeah with with like supercomputers becoming more accessible now and just regular computers becoming more powerful that's it's we, we have a lot more data crunching power than we used to and scientists are putting that to some serious work definitely there's, a, I think, probably what people know most about when they think about um, outer space and aliens is the sightings and the claims of, of alien abduction and invasion. And an element of that that maybe we don't think about is, um, will we recognize not only their communication, but will we recognize alien life? And are we living with it on a daily basis? You know, is it is there enough commonality that, that we'll recognize it um, and be able to communicate? Or is there so little commonality that we won't even realize that it's around us on a daily basis? Yeah, and that's a really good question. And that's, I mean, like, we don't know the answer to that. There, there are some scientists who actually think that, that there might be kind of alien life on earth I mean, they call it the that there might be a shadow biosphere here on earth that shares like a different kind of evolutionary path or that that has a different evolutionary path than than our life and sort of what we think of as normal life you know us and trees and grass and fish and all that and that's not it's not super crazy to think about that i mean based on how fast life got going here on earth it's not crazy to think it could have happened more than once and if that if it did happen more than once maybe one of those like that kind of genesis was different and does things different biologically, biochemically, and we might not recognize it in our assays if there's still microbial here on Earth. It's possible that there is this whole undiscovered lineage of, you can't really call them aliens because they, because they might be native to Earth, but like a, they, they would be very different. They would be a second genesis. There's a group of scientists who take that idea very seriously and are actually hunting for those things in like weird environments where where a sort of normal life has like a really hard time actually surviving. So that's one other aspect of this that, that kind of ties in with what you're talking about. I mean, I mean, alien life can be so different that we might not even recognize it. Like we might not even recognize life forms right under our noses that have been here all along. You talk about that, you know, they're getting, getting life going in the recipe and sustaining it. And there seems to have been a shift in 
research as far as the appreciation of that too, that what we used to think were the necessary ingredients that maybe for different types of life forms, certain things that we thought were necessary aren't necessary. Yeah. And it, I mean, it just depends on sort of on what your environment is. I mean, and I mean, water-based life with carbon, that seems to be, that makes a lot of sense. That's what we are. That's what, that's, that's what earth life is all about. And so it's, tempting to think that if if like life does exist out there somewhere else that would be a really good combination for it to use just because water and and complex carbon molecules are really common throughout the entire universe and um so it's that it's it's sort of tempting to kind of base your like to, to base your searches on that and be like well there's a pretty good possibility that a lot of aliens out there are similar to us at least biochemically but that, but you can't get sort of trapped into that mindset and, and think that's the only way to do things because there are some worlds where you can't really do water carbon chemistry. It's like it's too cold. Um, I mean, maybe there's there's something else chemically going on. And yeah, like a good example is actually Titan, which is this you know, giant moon of Saturn. Um, it's got a really thick atmosphere. It's got like energy sources in that atmosphere, lots of organic molecules. But it's so cold on the surface that I mean every every little drop of yeah like water is like frozen into rock hard ice and they they have lakes and seas on Titan but it's actually liquid hydrocarbons so it's more like gasoline than like water and if if there are life forms swimming around in those lakes and seas they would not be like anything we know they they would not do the same kind of chemistry that that we're used to but it's possible that they 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 could use silicon maybe in those super cold hydrocarbon solvents. So it's just one of those things like we can use Earth life to kind of set expectations, but but we can't get trapped into thinking that's the only way to do it. Which is making me think of Conan the Bacterium. Um, The fact that there are these um, single-celled microbes and other other, um, life that is just so incredibly different and can exist in such unbelievably drastic conditions, you know, being bombarded by radiation, and that's just fine. Yeah, and that and that that's another aspect of yeah. We, we're talking about how much things have changed in in the last time that you know ten or twenty years or so in, in terms of astronomy. I mean, finding exoplanets, finding habitable worlds in our own solar system, and this appreciation for how tough microbes are has sort of paralleled that. That's come recently too. Only in like the last thirty years or so have scientists really gained an appreciation of how tough a lot of Earth's microbes are. I mean, they're found in all these environments where it was previously thought to be impossible for anything to live. You know, these like these super hot like mud pots that are yeah, that are in Yellowstone and um and they're buried under Antarctic ice and they're just everywhere. And scientists have done experiments where they've exposed some of these things in space, just like naked out in out in the vacuum of space and a lot of them can survive that at least for a while. And so that's really kind of opened people's eyes to thinking well, maybe there are a lot more places where life could be found than we thought, because life, at least here on Earth, is super, super tough. My son and I were sitting in the car yesterday after school waiting for uh, parent conferences to start, and he was showing me some YouTube videos, and we were watching one on Jabba the Hutt, and in general, (laughs) about what incredible species they are. Um, And, you know, much more likely to outlive any humanoid (laughs) <laughs> based yeah, on their, and, their slimy um, skin and they they're you know multi-sexed so they can reproduce on their own and 
Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 the thing. We like we think we we sort of dominate this planet, but we and we're we're certainly changing it in, in all sorts of ways. But yeah, we we shouldn't get too 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 sort of arrogant or too yeah or too dismissive of the other life forms on this planet because some of them are really amazing and really tough. And I mean, we are actually outnumbered. I mean, a lot of a lot of your listeners probably know that like we we're outnumbered within our own bodies by sort of alien cells, not from another planet, but um, that don't belong to, to us. And they're a microbiome, just basically all these microbes that live on and inside us. They're, they're probably at least as common as our own cells and actually might be even more common. So there's a lot going on that's, that's, that's beyond us. We don't have all the answers evolutionarily or intellectually. So I know there's a, a discussion going on within the community about using the term uh, SETI, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and if that's accurate and if that's really what we're looking for and should be looking for. And within that, I think something that we began talking about at, at the start of the show as far as the goal and what is is progress, and you mentioned there's no arrow of progress inherent in evolution, and maybe you could talk a little about what, what you mean by that and if that's a comforting thought or a discomforting thought. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that you should, that I think it's important to kind of keep in mind when you're thinking about the kind of where is everybody, where are all the intelligent aliens. I mean, people think that what happened here on Earth is, uh, it was bound to happen, it had to happen. Like every planet where, like where there's life, like will eventually host some kind of super intelligent technical species. And I mean, yeah, I don't, I, that's not how evolution works. Nothing's preordained, you know, like whatever works, I mean, whatever gets out your, your genes and whatever is successful, that's what, that's what gets reinforced. That's how natural selection works. So just to take what happened here on Earth as an example, I mean, we were talking about how, how quickly life got started about 4 billion years ago, maybe not quite that long, but in that neighborhood. And then for more than 3 billion years after that, that's all there was on Earth was just microbes. There's a tremendous like diversity of them, obviously, but we don't see multicellularity in the fossil record until about 600 million years ago. So there was this long stretch where there were no animals, there were no multicellular organisms at all, just microbes. And that's for actually most of the, the vast majority of the history of, of, of sort of life on this planet was just microbial. And then after animals come along about 600 million years ago, you know, you don't get human beings until 200,000 years ago. That's another long stretch, right? So, and then, I mean, we're only technically and in, in, in sort of technologically intelligent. That just happened in the last century or so. So the, these things, I mean, maybe part of the answer to Fermi's paradox is that, I mean, if there are a lot of planets out there that, that have lots of microbes kind of swimming around in, in, in dark, dank little pools, and that's what they stay. They just stay that way for billions of years. And maybe it's, it's weird what happened here on Earth is just weird that it's, it, it, like it doesn't happen very often for, for microbes to, to kind of radiate into animals and then for those animals to become super intelligent. Maybe, maybe that does not happen very often. And what does it mean to say that intelligence is convergent? You talk about that a bit in the book. Yeah, that's another thing that people need to keep in mind. And that's, that's sort of what, what you were talking about, too. I mean, study the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Like, that's a pretty loaded term. People talk about intelligence and it's really colored through our own biases and, and our own experiences. Like we think of ourselves as intelligent. So for something to be intelligent, it has to be like us. It has to think like us. It has to manipulate its environment like us. And that might not be the right approach. And there are some study scientists who push to change the name of the field to the search for techno signatures, which is not like a loaded term, just like, 
just means like search for some form of technology, which is what we would have to be able to detect from afar. Because um, there are plenty of intelligent species on Earth, right? Like, I mean, people have done lots of studies about how smart chimps are, dolphins are, even octopus dogs. And, yeah, they're they're super smart, and they're 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 not even vertebrates, and they're incredibly intelligent. So we we shouldn't be so so arrogant in terms of thinking everything that's intelligent has to has to think like us or has to behave like us. And that's another thing to sort of keep in mind when you're trying to actually look for signs of some kind of advanced alien life or intelligent alien life. You want to put those those words in quotes. And one might say looking at our political um, scenario right now, we're not doing a very good job of that, of, of thinking that maybe those who don't look like us or think like us or value exactly the same things um, are... are yeah. uh, better or worse. You talk about in the book, um, the bottleneck that may lie ahead for our civilization, just thinking about the likelihood that other civilizations would have gotten to our state and beyond, and yet they don't see obviously prolific. Yeah, and that's, that's a depressing thought, right? I mean, if, if you think about where is everybody, then you have to think, well, there's a bottleneck somewhere. Is, is the bottleneck early on where it's just really hard to get started, to, for life to get started? And as we were talking about, you know, our own example on Earth suggests that's not it because Earth life got started really fast. Is the big bottleneck the jump to multicellular life? And that may well be because it, it didn't happen right away here on Earth, that's for sure. It took more than 3 billion years. Um, or And what's really depressing possibility, though, is maybe the like biggest bottleneck comes after like you develop into a technologically very advanced species and you come up with all these different ways you can kill yourself. Um, and maybe that still lies ahead of us. We like, I mean, we've almost already killed ourselves with, with like nuclear Holocaust, you know, you can go back to the Cuban missile crisis and all those showdowns in, during the cold war uh, that were far scarier than folks ever realized at the time. And now we've sort of initiated this I mean, a dual crisis, climate change, and also loss of, yeah, sort of, sort of ecosystem function as we're as we're killing off huge numbers of species, uh, yeah, and habitat loss and stuff like that. We, I mean, we don't know what the outcome is going to be still underway. So maybe we're in the middle of sort of killing ourselves off by by a thousand cuts now. Um, so maybe that's the bottleneck that takes out most species. Maybe that's that's where everybody went is they they kind of off themselves in in various ways once they reached a certain a certain stage of their development. Do you get any sense about about why it doesn't seem that people seem to care that much? I, I, as I was doing research for the interview, in one day we discovered that Earth has two extra gaseous moons. Um, there was a hard report on an alien cigar-like object that they discovered that was acting very suspiciously. Um, you talk about in the book... Um, Oumuamua, which is a likely spaceship of sorts that is floating around. And and so once you dig a little bit, you're like, oh my gosh, I could pull up a dozen stories of unbelievably incredible things that we found either on the Earth or on the Moon or about the Sun or about something in our galaxy or, or beyond. And yet, people don't seem to give it much attention. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's, um, it's true of most things that I mean, I mean, people's attention spans are shorter than they used to be, I think. And there's there's more competition for that attention. Just there's so much to pay attention to. There's a constant kind of deluge of things coming at you. And I think 
and people are, are a little bit more kind of yeah, torn in a bunch of different directions than they used to be, and they're more distracted than they used to be. Um, so, so I think that's all part of it. At the same time, I mean, aliens do tend to get people's attention. That this, this like a muamua stuff um, about this weird like interstellar object that some people think might be a spacecraft. That that's gotten people's attention. I mean, it's, it's like not lasting. It'll it'll be forgotten in a couple of days by most folks. But yeah, yeah aliens and the like prospect of well, could that be an alien spacecraft? Could we have been visited? That's one of the things that does tend to grab people at least temporarily. I think the thing that I was surprised about um, was the amount of knowledge that we have gained in such a short time and the amount of data that we're collecting, that I sort of had no sense of that, that, that perspective. Um, you know, I, I knew about the, the Ohio State University Big Ear Radio Telescope and, and maybe some others and, and where we were listening. But the idea that we have all of the this information about these planets and stars and systems that are so far away. And the thing that kept crossing my mind is, well, I believed it, um, but then how? How do we how do we get all this data and how have we been able to make all of these um guesses and, 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 and kind of come to conclusions about all of these intricate aspects of these planets that are so far away? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it kind of goes back to yeah, the earlier question. I mean, you mentioned, but yeah, because you talk, yeah, talked about the habitable zone a little bit. I, I kind of forgot to talk about it, but that, that's a good example in this, like in this case, because like a lot of it is just educated guesses. I mean, some of these planets are pretty far away. And so they're I mean, all pretty far like away. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Some of them are very far away, but yeah. it's, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's not like we can, we have pictures of them. We, we can see the clouds and the continents and oceans. I mean, it's, it's, it's all inference. I mean, it's, it's scientifically grounded inference, but at the same time, there's so many variables that we don't know about. So it's really hard to know if a planet is actually habitable, is in the habitable zone, quote unquote, because that like depends upon how kind of bright the star is, whether its star is super active, you know, blasts out lots of flares that can strip away a planet's atmosphere, and whether it's in the habitable zone actually depends on that planet's atmosphere too, you know, is it thick, does it have a lot of heat-trapping gases, because that'll affect what, what the temperature is on the surface. All this stuff matters a lot, and for almost every like exoplanet, in fact, for pretty much every exoplanet, we don't know those variables for sure, we just have to guess. So there's still a lot of inference and a lot of guesswork so yeah, I mean, and and yeah, most of the time, I mean, there, there's a lot of hedging involved. I mean, scientists are pretty careful and responsible and they're kind of usually careful to say, you know, this is what we think, this is not what we know, this is what we think is going on with this planet. You sometimes lose sight of that with, with some of the more breathless media coverage. Um, but yeah, yeah, scientists are usually pretty careful about what they know. And, but, they and know. it seems like we know a lot that's sort of mind-boggling that we can know. And I know there was some talk about um, the possibility that Gale hosted a lake and stream system for at least millions of years with clean water on Mars, or that Venus was a balmy ocean world at one point. And you just sort yeah. of sitting here on Earth think, how can we, how can we even guess at that, let alone know those things? And so we are... Yeah. We are so, collecting a yeah, yeah. tremendous amount of data, I think more than I realized yeah. with pictures and yeah. exploration missions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just saying, I mean, it's it's true. Scientists are able to do a lot with what they get. And yeah, I mean, knowing that, that there were lakes on Mars and streams on Mars that lasted for a long time, I mean, we, we figured that out because 
because we have a rover that's been exploring those landscapes, a Curiosity rover, NASA. It's a $2.5 billion mission that actually landed on Mars in 2012 and is still going strong. It made measurements. It, it observed the rocks. And the, the mission scientists figured all that out based on all the data that Curiosity returned. And it seriously is amazing. I mean, the, like, I mean scientists are really smart people. They're, they're able to figure out a lot of stuff based on like a few observations here and there. It's really pretty incredible. And I think remembering, uh, I think I remember reading that they've discovered that 5% of all rocks launched off Mars eventually they think will end up on Earth and that there's already so many here that they found that have come from Mars. That there's even yeah, some theories absolutely. that maybe, you know, evolution didn't work the way we thought. It was just kind of rained down upon us. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's, that's there are a lot of people who think that actually Earth life may have, have actually come from Mars. Like Mars may have been the, the cradle of life in the solar system because as we were talking about earlier, you know, it used to have oceans and streams and um, and it probably cooled down faster than the Earth did after, after its formation because Mars is smaller, so it didn't take as long to cool down enough for life to form there. Uh, there, there are other reasons that, that some people think that it was yeah, that it was a better cradle than, than near the Earth was too. And so, and that's part of the story is the fact that if an asteroid smashes into Mars and blasts a bunch of rocks off into space, you know, some of those rocks do make their way to Earth just by, by sheer probability getting, getting sucked toward the sun, first of all, because the sun's powerful gravity will suck that stuff in. And some of it will will get trapped by Earth's gravity and, and fall to Earth. So yeah, that's, that's, a, really, that's a really interesting thought. Um, and there are, there are scientists looking into that possibility now. We have found like more than 150 Mars meteorites at like at this point, um, and there are doubtless more of them that are at the bottom of the ocean or in a jungle somewhere we just don't know about. And at least in popular culture, I think one of the first go-to ideas for where we're going to go um, when our Earth is done is that we'll settle on Mars. And you said the first Mars settlers will encounter a world that wants them dead and has at least four interesting and painful ways to make it happen. <laughs> yes, this is true. Mars is not a great place for us to live now. Um, we would have to live underground, maybe, or at least in sealed, in, in sealed habitats. Um, because, yeah, it's cold, it's blasted by really harsh radiation, there's not enough oxygen there, and it's got such a thin atmosphere that your blood would pretty much boil out really fast. Um, yeah, it would not be pleasant just to go walking on the surface in, like, in short sleeves. Um, but, yeah, but then there, there are people who want to live on Mars and have it be like Earth, so you can just walk around outside. We, we'd have to do a lot of work to make that happen. We'd have to terraform it. We'd, I don't even know if that's possible. Scientists don't even know if it's feasible to do on any kind of time scale that we can appreciate. And yet it seems that um, commercialism is moving into this arena or has moved in, into this arena and the, there's a focus on the privatization of the quest. You know, NASA is still moving ahead and, and other countries. Um, but we've got uh, Made in Space, where they're going to start production or have, I don't know, in space of um, different things that they can bring back to Earth and sell and then use in space travel. SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, um, there's a San Francisco company, Planet. What are your feelings about the, the privatization of this? Is it going to be a better idea than the privatization of prisons on Earth? Is it, is it a more, <laughs> a more uh, smart thing to do and let happen? Yeah, it, 
Yeah, it probably couldn't be a worse idea than a privatization of prisons. Um, yeah, I mean, I think private space flight's really interesting, and that's where that's really taking off now too. Um, that's another kind of kind of parallel kind of thing that that, that we're living through right now. As, as the search for alien life heats up, the the whole private space flight industry is heating up too. I mean, obviously, Elon Musk gets most of the press because of what he's been able to accomplish and what he wants to do. He he wants to start a a colony on Mars. That, that, that's why he started SpaceX in 2002. That was the aim. And everything is working toward that. He's very serious about that. They actually want to yeah, start launching their first crewed Mars mission to take the first Mars pioneers within like the next decade or so. And so I don't know if he'll meet that timeline, but he really wants to. So, And then like you got the richest man in the world, uh, Bezos is actually, he's got his own spaceflight company Blue Origin, which has similar aims. They also want to try to help humanity get off and out into the solar system, living in space, working in space. And he is very serious about it too. So these things are happening. There's people with a lot of money who are putting a lot of money into these efforts. And I mean, who knows what the timelines are, but they're very, very serious. Um, and I, I think I, mean, I think SpaceX may well get to Mars before NASA does. And that'll be really interesting because you've got, if you've got planetary protection issues, I mean, anytime you take people to Mars, we're going to bring our microbes with us. Um, we're going to shed microbes on Mars. Some of them might survive there. Some of them might, if there are Mars microbes there, they might get outcompeted by Earth microbes. It's it's a really it's a really tricky ethical thing that we're going to have to think about before it happens, or else it'll just happen with with no thought. And that's that's definitely not ideal. So we talk, We started talking about um, the future and, and the future of the planet, the future of our, our sun. Um, I want to kind of go all the way back uh, to the beginning and to the idea of inflation theory and that the universe is still getting bigger without displacing or diminishing anything else. And maybe if you could just give a brief discussion on that and the idea of parallel universes. And then we yeah, can then because then tough. we can talk about going interstellar, speed of light, and uh, wormholes. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, so yeah, like our universe is is expanding, and that's probably and that's been happening since the Big Bang. And the physicists think that um, that like right after the Big Bang, there was a super fast inflation period, which is where the entire universe just blew up like a huge bubble. And like when that happened. I mean, like the current theory, like kind of dictates that that would create a lot of different universes. And there are some scientists who think it would even create like an infinite number of, of sort of parallel universes. And then if you, so that's what the theory suggests. And like our own observations also suggest that, that the universe is infinite, that it goes on forever. Like, like our own universe, not, not one of these hypothetical parallel ones, but, but the one we actually live in. Like, we don't know that for sure. It seems like it's, it's infinite. And if it's not infinite, it's really, really big. But um, now we're talking about infinity. Like that's a really powerful concept. When you, when you have infinity, it basically means anything that, that is physically possible will actually manifest somewhere. Um, if, if matter is kind of distributed more or less evenly throughout that infinite space. And, and then that, that kind of bears on the, the sort of search for alien life and what does ET look like? Because, an ET could theoretically look like anything that's physically possible if you have an infinite universe. And that's, that's like a sci-fi weird thing, but it's also actually, that's, 
that's how reality is if we do live in an infinite universe and or have infinite numbers of parallel universes. There's just, you just cannot imagine what's actually out there if, if, if that's the case. And that the shape of it makes a difference, right? Whether it's flat versus spherical in, in both regards, yeah, that's, inf infinite. Yeah, that's, that's how scientists are trying to figure out whether it's infinite or not. If, I mean, if it's infinite, it's predicted to have a certain shape. Um, if, it's, if it's closed or spherical, then it's not infinite. So scientists are, um, are trying to figure out what the shape of the universe is because once they know that, then they'll know if it's, if it's finite or infinite. And so far, all the measurements are kind of pointing toward infinite, but there's a little wiggle room in the data. There, there's like a margin for error that they can't yet get rid of because just, I mean, it's not an exact measurement. So, um, yeah, it seems like it's probably infinite, but we're not, not sure. So maybe in the last bit, let's just talk about time travel, because within that, we can talk about um, so many things. <laughs> we can talk about going interstellar, the speed of light, um, the banana peel theory, the multiple timelines, dark energy, antimatter, yeah. and, and wormholes. Yeah. So that's why it's so good. Yeah. Um, and maybe let's start with the idea of um, the speed of light and why light can travel or does travel at speed of light and why the photons um, are able to do that. Yeah, well, that's because they don't have any. Yeah, like they don't have any mass. So, so any object with mass can never travel at the speed of light. It's just, it's impossible. That's one of the fundamental laws of the universe that we live in. Light can travel as fast as it does because it is massless. It's a massless particle. But the so reason's really, really good. We got to throw that out there as to why something uh -huh. with mass can't. Yeah, because yeah, well, it's basically as as you get faster and faster you get heavier and and yeah and like heavier that's um that's that's how relativity works there's a lot of other weird stuff that that also happens but so so as you like approach infinite speed or like as you approach light speed you would approach infinite mass um and that's just that's impossible that does not make any sense at all even in a universe with lots of stuff that doesn't make sense that's one of the big ones so that's that's why that's why a mass particle cannot travel the speed of light. It would it would become infinitely massive if we were somehow able to achieve that. So how does Solo do it? You know, Han, <laughs> Han Solo. <laughs> That's a very good question. If if like we knew how how those warp drives worked in Star Wars and Star Trek, then that that would be great. <laughs> well, sometimes there's the, at one point I think they were looking for a wormhole, where mm -hmm. they they yeah, thought they went through one. So yeah. what would that what would that look like? That's like that's like a, a tunnel in space time, basically. I mean, you can think of of, of our universe, all that all that it is made of, which we call the space time. It's basically this this fabric that that kind of connects everything in the universe. You can think of it as kind of like a like a blanket or a sheet. Um, it's possible that you could somehow find a tunnel that that would go from one spot to another, kind of kind of burrow through the folds of that sheet in a tunnel, like it's possible you could find one or maybe make one if you're super advanced and have a ton of energy at your disposal that could take you like across huge distances. You could never like kind of traverse in that time by going like up and down in the, in the bumps and the folds of that sheet, you could just cut right through it. Um, and there are people who think that's possible, but not practical. I mean, and wormholes are theorized to exist. Nobody has actually seen one, but scientists think they probably do. But they also think that if they do exist, they're very tiny, very skinny, and they, they close really quickly. They, they immediately close up unless you have some way of forcing them to stay open, 
which involves negative energy, which is as kind of weird as it sounds. Um, so we don't know how, if, if, if like negative energy actually exists in the quantities that we need to force open a wormhole, if we could make that wormhole big enough to allow a spaceship to pass through it. These seem like very daunting technical challenges, and um, they would all apply to a structure that is just, it's like, it's like purely theoretical at this point. Nobody has found a wormhole. So that's a science fiction sort of favorite. It's not anything that we would ever do in the near term if it's possible at all. And then the other question that I think we often fail to ask is, and would it be a good idea? <laughs> we, <laughs> we could do yeah. it. Should we do it? And so maybe we can apply that to time travel. What, what are your thoughts on that? If we could do it, should we do it? Would it be a good idea? And how would we deal with the grandfather paradox? Yeah, I, I don't know. That that's pretty that's pretty crazy because you you don't know how you would change everything. I and mean, this is this is this has been covered in in lots of sci-fi by lots of very smart people who who imagined all the ethical conundrums and so on and so forth. Um, and it's probably best to start with just scientists aren't sure if time travel is actually possible, right? I mean, it is allowed by but yeah, by like Einstein's equations, it is mathematically possible in those equations. There are ways to solve them where time travel is possible. But most most physicists think that um, it's not practically feasible. Like it's one of those things that exists only on the page of a math workbook and could not exist like in our reality. There would be too many things that would jump in to sort of stop it from happening. It's kind of like the banana peel hypothesis you were you were talking about earlier. There, I mean, there are some people who think that it's possible and that, that it could I'm happen. I'm just going to say what the banana peel hypothesis is because it was one of my favorite things. Um, and for those <laughs> those people who watch Flash, they might find it comforting as well, which was the idea yeah. that the universe also makes you think, okay, there's God, because that the universe wouldn't let you um, kill your grandfather because the grandfather paradox is the idea that if you go back in time um, and kill your grandfather, well, you would no longer exist, which we had a little bit of that in Flash season one where you're like, ah, how does that work out? Um, but uh, the the idea of the ban- banana peel is that there would be a banana peel when you went to stab him that you would slip on it. What you tried to do, you wouldn't be able, the yeah. universe would keep you keep you from doing it so that you could exist because you do exist. Or then the backup yeah. plan that, well, you exist, there are multiple timelines and you exist, you could kill him because you'll exist in a, in a different timeline. Yeah, yeah, and and... Like, and there are some people who, who kind of extend the banana peel thing out to the very existence of, of time travel in the first place. Like you can build a time machine that should work by all respects. You 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 designed it perfectly on, based on on all the equations that like should work, but then something will always happen so it doesn't work. Like something on the quantum level will always pop up that make it impossible for it to actually work. So there there are a lot of scientists who've actually put forth that sort of hypothesis. I mean Stephen Hawking was probably the most famous person who put that forward um like like a couple of decades ago. He was one of those people who thought, well I mean even if it's mathematically possible and you build a thing, something on the quantum level will always will always keep it from happening. Um so yeah, I mean this this stuff this is stuff people debate about. Scientists debate about this this stuff endlessly. And I mean I I don't know when and if we're ever going to find the answer, the like definitive answer is time travel possible? Is it is it feasible? It's one of those things that people have been arguing about for a very long time. Well, there was another good caveat too that if you could, you could only go back to the time that the machine was built. That you couldn't go back prior to that yeah. time. Yeah, that was a good one too. Yeah, like, yeah, ah. yeah. That's yeah. That's that's 
that's true. And that's, that, that could be an explanation for why we, we have not actually gotten time travelers from the future yet, because we have not reached the, the point in time where we were able to invent a time machine. So, um, yeah, I mean, who knows? So as far as your favorite planet and your favorite uh, interstellar occurrence, without I'm just throwing the net super wide, like anything out there in the universe that you just think is the coolest thing. Does it have to be a planet? No, well, no, but maybe first planet. That's question one. Favorite planet. Well, can I choose a, like an actual moon instead of oh, a planet? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm one of my, my, like my favorite, but kind of, yeah, the solar system object anyway is probably Jupiter's moon Europa, which I was talking about a little bit earlier. It's this icy moon that has a gigantic ocean buried under its ice shell. And like that ocean contains about twice as much water as, as all of Earth's oceans combined. And the ocean is in contact with, with the rocky core of Europa. Um, and it seems like it has plate tectonics, Europa does, which basically big ice slabs that are diving on top of each other, under each other, within that ice shell. So churning things up, taking, taking stuff from the surface down into the ocean and vice versa. And it's just a fascinating place, and I think it's one of the best bets that we have for finding alien life. I think it's very possible there could be microbes swimming around in that ocean, maybe even like something as small as like a tiny fish. That's like um, it's possible there could be enough energy in that ocean to support like things as small as a tiny fish. I'm I'm optimistic. I'm not I'm not saying it's there, but I mean I think that's one of our best bets, and it's just really cool looking. I mean, if you Google image search Europa. It's just it's, it's just this amazing object. It's got these um these fissures in its ice shell that are that are just they're kind of orangish red because of like the UV rate because of all the radiation coming from from the parent planet Jupiter. It's just kind of dyed this material dark. It's just it's just this beautiful place that has just I mean it's rich with so many opportunities. So yeah, I I, I and the actually NASA is going to launch. If the, like if all goes according to plan in 2022, they're they're going to launch a flyby mission to Europa that's going to orbit Jupiter, but it'll actually study Europa over the course of like 35 flybys, and they're going to try to figure out more about that buried ocean. They're going to scout out places to actually put put down like a lander on, on the ice shell, which hopefully that's a different mission that will hopefully launch I don't know sometime in the near future. I thought you were maybe going to go for Enceladus, Enceladus and Saturn's bright, dramatic rings. <laughs> it seemed like there was oh, a yeah. lot of lot of um, hope there as well for for finding life. Yeah, that's that's another that's another amazing object, and it's got these geysers that blast out from its south pole. It also has a buried ocean, and that it's really cool because I mean, stuff from that buried ocean is coming out in those geysers. So there's a way, I mean, we want to design like a, a space mission that could fly through the plumes created by those geysers, and you could actually sample that material that's coming from the ocean. And if you design that probe right, you, you could do like an alien life search of Enceladus without even landing on it. Um, and there are a lot of scientists who actually want to do that, and they're are, like they're designing mission proposals. And it's just, yeah, that's another fascinating world that I would love us to, to study up, up close. And so if you had a magic wand and you could understand, or like one wish, but a big one, you could understand the workings of one thing, like what would you choose? Like, I think I might go with black hole, you know, how, how they work. What, what, is there something that you, that kind of grabs your thoughts um, when you lie awake at night and think, gosh, if we could only understand this? 
I mean, maybe I would go with time travel. Maybe I would say I'd like to understand if it's possible and if we're ever, if we ever have have a hope of achieving that, either that or or yeah, or you know, like wormholes too. If it if it would ever be possible to understand them well enough to be able to to, to traverse them, to actually manipulate them so that we can traverse them. I think that because if if that's possible, then we can we can explore like all over the galaxy and probably beyond if, if like we become masters of wormhole technology somehow. So I, I would like to know if that's actually possible or if that will just, just be forever way too difficult for us to do. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this is Ellie Newman of That Got Me Thinking. I've been speaking to Michael Wall about his book out there, A Scientific Guide to Alien Life, Antimatter, and Human Space Travel for the Cosmically Curious. And the book is just wonderful. This is one word, wonderful. Just wonderful in all regards. Wow. Thank you so much, Ali, and thank you. It's, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. I really appreciate it. Okay, great. Thanks so much. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.